Section ten of the History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second, Volume three, Chapter fourteen, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section ten. Among the less distinguished divines who forfeited their benefices were doubtless many good men, but it is certain that the moral character of the non-jurors as a class did not stand high. It seems hard to impute laxity of principle to persons who undoubtedly made a great sacrifice to principle, and yet experience abundantly proves that many who are capable of making a great sacrifice when their blood is heated by conflict and when the public eye is fixed upon them are not capable of persevering long in the daily practice of obscure virtues. It is by no means improbable that zealots may have given their lives for a religion which had never effectually restrained their vindictive or their licentious passions. We learn indeed from fathers of the highest authority that even in the purest ages of the Church some confessors who had manfully refused to save themselves from torments and death by throwing frankincense on the altar of Jupiter, afterwards brought scandal on the Christian name by gross fraud and debauchery. For the non-juring divines great allowance must in fairness be made. They were doubtless in a most trying situation. In general, a schism which divides a religious community divides the laity as well as the clergy. The seceding pastors, therefore, carry with them a large part of their flocks, and are consequently assured of a maintenance. But the schism of 1689 scarcely extended beyond the clergy. The law required the rector to take the oaths or to quit his living, but no oath, no acknowledgment of the title of the new king and queen, was required from the parishioner as a qualification for attending divine service or for receiving the Eucharist. Not one in fifty, therefore, of those laymen who disapproved of the revolution thought himself bound to quit his pew in the old church, where the old liturgy was still read, and where the old vestments were still worn, and to follow the ejected priest to a conventicle, a conventicle, too, which was not protected by the Toleration Act. Thus the new sect was a sect of preachers without hearers, and such preachers could not make a livelihood by preaching. In London, indeed, and in some other large towns, those vehement Jacobites, whom nothing would satisfy but to hear King James and the Prince of Wales prayed for by name, were sufficiently numerous to make up a few small congregations, which met secretly and under constant fear of the constables in rooms so mean that the meeting-houses of the Puritan dissenters might by comparison be called palaces. Even Collier, who had all the qualities which attract large audiences, was reduced to be the minister of a little knot of malcontents, whose oratory was on a second floor in the city. But the non-juring clergymen who were able to obtain even a pittance by officiating at such places were very few. Of the rest, some had independent means, some lived by literature, one or two practised physic. Thomas Wagstaff, for example, who had been Chancellor of Lichfield, had many patients, and made himself conspicuous by always visiting them in full canonicals. But these were exceptions. 
Industrious poverty is a state by no means unfavourable to virtue, but it is dangerous to be at once poor and idle, and most of the clergymen who had refused to swear found themselves thrown on the world with nothing to eat and with nothing to do. They naturally became beggars and loungers. Considering themselves as martyrs suffering in a public cause, they were not ashamed to ask any good churchman for a guinea. Most of them passed their lives in running about from one Tory coffee-house to another, abusing the Dutch, hearing and spreading reports that within a month His Majesty would certainly be on English ground, and wondering who would have Salisbury when Burnet was hanged. During the session of Parliament the lobbies and the Court of Requests were crowded with deprived parsons, asking who was up and what the numbers were on the last division. Many of the ejected divines became domesticated as chaplains, tutors, and spiritual directors in the houses of opulent Jacobites. In a situation of this kind, a man of pure and exalted character, such a man as Ken was among the non-jurors, and Watts among the non-conformists, may preserve his dignity, and may much more than repay by his example and his instructions the benefits which he receives. But to a person whose virtue is not high-toned, this way of life is full of peril. If he is of a quiet disposition, he is in danger of sinking into a servile, sensual, drowsy parasite. If he is of an active and aspiring nature, it may be feared that he will become expert in those bad arts by which, more easily than by faithful service, retainers make themselves agreeable or formidable. To discover the weak side of every character, to flatter every passion and prejudice, to sow discord and jealousy where love and confidence ought to exist, to watch the moment of indiscreet openness for the purpose of extracting secrets important to the prosperity and honour of families, such are the practices by which keen and restless spirits have too often avenged themselves for the humiliation of dependence. The public voice loudly accused many non-jurors of requiting the hospitality of their benefactors with villainy as black as that of the hypocrite depicted in the masterpiece of Moliere. Indeed, when Kibber undertook to adapt that noble comedy to the English stage, he made his Tartuffe a non-juror, and Johnson, who cannot be supposed to have been prejudiced against the non-jurors, frankly owned that Kibber had done them no wrong. There can be no doubt that the schism caused by the oaths would have been far more formidable if, at this crisis, any extensive change had been made in the government or in the ceremonial of the established church. It is a highly instructive fact that those enlightened and tolerant divines who most ardently desired such a change afterwards saw reason to be thankful that their favourite project had failed. Whigs and Tories had, in the late session, combined to get rid of Nottingham's Comprehension Bill by voting an address which requested the King to refer the whole subject to the Convocation. Burnet foresaw the effect of this vote. The whole scheme, he said, was utterly ruined. Many of his friends, however, thought differently, and among these was Tillotson. Of all the members of the Low Church Party, Tillotson stood highest in general estimation. As a preacher, he was thought by his contemporaries to have surpassed all rivals, living or dead. Posterity has reversed this judgment. Yet Tillotson still keeps his place as a legitimate English classic. 
His highest flights were indeed far below those of Taylor, of Barrow, and of South, but his oratory was more correct and equable than theirs. No quaint conceits, no pedantic quotations from Talmudists and scholiasts, no mean images, buffoon stories, scurrilous invectives, ever marred the effect of his grave and temperate discourses. His reasoning was just sufficiently profound and sufficiently refined to be followed by a popular audience, with that slight degree of intellectual exertion which is a pleasure. His style is not brilliant, but it is pure, transparently clear, and equally free from the levity and from the stiffness which disfigure the sermons of some eminent divines of the seventeenth century. He is always serious. Yet there is about his manner a certain graceful ease which marks him as a man who knows the world, who has lived in populous cities and in splendid courts, and who has conversed not only with books, but with lawyers and merchants, wits and beauties, statesmen and princes. The greatest charm of his compositions, however, is driven from the benignity and candour which appear in every line, and which shone forth not less conspicuously in his life than in his writings. As a theologian, Tillotson was certainly not less latitudinarian than Burnet, yet many of those clergymen to whom Burnet was an object of implacable aversion spoke of Tillotson with tenderness and respect. It is therefore not strange that the two friends should have formed different estimates of the temper of the priesthood, and should have expected different results from the meeting of the convocation. Tillotson was not displeased with the vote of the Commons. He conceived that changes made in religious institutions by mere secular authority might disgust many churchmen who would yet be perfectly willing to vote in an ecclesiastical synod for changes more extensive still, and his opinion had great weight with the King. It was resolved that the convocation should meet at the beginning of the next session of Parliament and that in the meantime a commission should issue, empowering some eminent divines to examine the liturgy, the canons, and the whole system of jurisprudence administered by the court's Christian, and to report on the alterations which it might be desirable to make. Most of the bishops who had taken the oaths were in this commission, and with them were joined twenty priests of great note. Of the twenty, Tillotson was the most important, for he was known to speak the sense both of the King and of the Queen. Among those commissioners who looked up to Tillotson as their chief were Stillingfleet, Dean of St. Paul's, Sharp, Dean of Norwich, Patrick, Dean of Peterborough, Tennyson, Rector of St. Martin's, and Fowler, to whose judicious firmness was chiefly to be ascribed the determination of the London clergy not to read the Declaration of Indulgence. With such men as those who have been named were mingled some divines who belonged to the High Church party. Conspicuous among these were two of the rulers of Oxford, Aldrich and Jane. Aldrich had recently been appointed Dean of Christchurch in the room of the Papist Massey, whom James had, in direct violation of the laws, placed at the head of that great college. The new Dean was a polite, though not a profound scholar, and a jovial, hospitable gentleman. He was the author of some theological tracts which have long been forgotten, and of a compendium of logic which is still used. But the best works which he has bequeathed to his posterity are his catches. Jane, the King's Professor of Divinity, was a graver but a less estimable man. 
he had borne the chief part in framing that decree by which his university ordered the works of Milton and Buchanan to be publicly burned in the schools. A few years later, irritated and alarmed by the persecution of the bishops, and by the confiscation of the revenues of Magdalen College, he had renounced the doctrine of non-resistance, had repaired to the headquarters of the Prince of Orange, and had assured His Highness that Oxford would willingly coin her plate for the support of the war against her oppressor. During a short time, Jane was generally considered as a Whig and was sharply lampooned by some of his old allies. He was so fortunate as to have a name which was an excellent mark for the learned punsters of the university. Several epigrams were written on the double-faced Janus, who, having got a professorship by looking one way, now hoped to get a bishopric by looking another. That he hoped to get a bishopric was perfectly true. He demanded the see of Exeter as a reward due to his services. He was refused. The refusal convinced him that the Church had as much to apprehend from latitudinarianism as from popery, and he speedily became a Tory again. Early in October, the commissioners assembled in the Jerusalem chamber. At their first meeting, they had determined to propose that, in the public services of the church, lessons taken from the canonical books of Scripture should be substituted for the lessons taken from the apocrypha. At the second meeting, a strange question was raised by the very last person who ought to have raised it. Spratt, Bishop of Rochester, who had, without any scruple, sat during two years in the unconstitutional tribunal which had, in the late reign, oppressed and pillaged the church of which he was a ruler, but he had now become scrupulous and expressed a doubt whether the commission were legal. To a plain understanding, his objections seemed to be mere quibbles. The commission gave power neither to make laws nor to administer laws, but simply to inquire and to report. Even without a royal commission, Tillotson, Patrick, and Stillingfleet might, with perfect propriety, have met to discuss the state and prospects of the Church, and to consider whether it would or would not be desirable to make some concession to the dissenters. And how could it be a crime for subjects to do so at the request of their sovereign, that which it would have been innocent and laudable for them to do without any such request? Spratt, however, was seconded by Jane. There was a sharp altercation, and Lloyd, Bishop of St. Asaph, who, with many good qualities, had an irritable temper, was provoked into saying something about spies. Spratt withdrew, and came no more. His example was soon followed by Jane and Aldrich. The commissioners proceeded to take into consideration the question of the posture of the Eucharist. It was determined to recommend that a communicant who, after conference with his minister, should declare that he could not conscientiously receive the bread and wine kneeling, might receive them sitting. Mew, Bishop of Winchester, an honest man, but illiterate, weak even in his best days, and now fast sinking into dotage, protested against this concession, and withdrew from the assembly. The other members continued to apply themselves vigorously to their task and no more secessions took place, though there were great differences of opinion, and though the debates were sometimes warm. The highest churchmen who still remained were Dr. William Beveridge, Archdeacon of Colchester, who many years later became Bishop of St. Asaph, and Dr. John Scott, the same who had prayed by the deathbed of Jeffreys. The most active among the latitudinarians appear to have been Burnet, 
Fowler and Tennyson. The baptismal service was repeatedly discussed. As to matter of form, the commissioners were disposed to be indulgent. They were generally willing to admit infants into the church without sponsors and without the sign of the cross. But the majority, after much debate, steadily refused to soften down or explain away those words which, to all minds not sophisticated, appear to assert the regenerating virtue of the sacrament. As to the surplice, the commissioners determined to recommend that a large discretion should be left to the bishops. Expedients were devised by which a person who had received Presbyterian ordination might, without admitting either expressly or by implication the invalidity of that ordination, become a minister of the Church of England. The ecclesiastical calendar was carefully revised. The great festivals were retained, but it was not thought desirable that St. Valentine, St. Chad, St. Swithin, St. Edward, King of the West Saxons, St. Dunstan, and St. Alphage should share the honours of St. John and St. Paul, or that the Church should appear to class the ridiculous fable of the discovery of the cross with facts so awfully important as the Nativity, the Passion, the Resurrection, and the Ascension of her Lord. The Athanasian Creed caused much perplexity. Most of the commissioners were equally unwilling to give up the doctrinal clauses and to retain the damnatory clauses. Burnett, Fowler, and Tillotson were desirous to strike this famous symbol out of the liturgy altogether. Burnett brought forward one argument, which to himself probably did not appear to have much weight, but which was admirably calculated to perplex his opponents Beveridge and Scott. The Council of Ephesus had always been reverenced by Anglican divines as a synod which had truly represented the whole body of the faithful, and which had been divinely guided in the way of truth. The voice of that council was the voice of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, not yet corrupted by superstition or rent asunder by schism. During more than twelve centuries the world had not seen an ecclesiastical assembly which had an equal claim to the respect of believers. The Council of Ephesus had, in the plainest terms, and under the most terrible penalties, forbidden Christians to frame or to impose upon their brethren any creed other than the creed settled by the Nicene Fathers. It should seem, therefore, that if the Council of Ephesus was really under the direction of the Holy Spirit, whoever uses the Athanasian Creed must, in the very act of uttering an anathema against his neighbours, bring down an anathema on his own head. In spite of the authority of the Ephesian Fathers, the majority of the commissioners determined to leave the Athanasian Creed in the prayer-book, but they proposed to add a rubric drawn up by Stillingfleet, which declared that the damnatory clauses were to be understood to apply only to such as obstinately denied the substance of the Christian faith. Orthodox believers were therefore permitted to hope that the heretic who had honestly and humbly sought for truth would not be everlastingly punished for having failed to find it. Tennyson was entrusted with the business of examining the liturgy, and of collecting all those expressions to which objections had been made, either by theological or by literary critics. It was determined to remove some obvious blemishes, and it would have been wise in the commissioners to stop here. Unfortunately, they were determined to rewrite a great part of the prayer-book, was a bold undertaking, for in general the style of that volume is such as cannot be improved. 
the English liturgy indeed gains by being compared even with those fine ancient liturgies from which it is to a great extent taken. The essential qualities of devotional eloquence, conciseness, majestic simplicity, pathetic earnestness of supplication, sobered by a profound reverence, are common between the translations and the originals. But in the subordinate graces of diction the originals must be allowed to be far inferior to the translations, and the reason is obvious. The technical phraseology of Christianity did not become a part of the Latin language till that language had passed the age of maturity and was sinking into barbarism. But the technical phraseology of Christianity was found in the Anglo-Saxon and in the Norman French, long before the union of those two dialects had produced a third dialect superior to either. The Latin of the Roman Catholic services, therefore, is Latin in the last stage of decay. The English of our services is English in all the vigour and suppleness of early youth. To the great Latin writers, to Terence and Lucretius, to Cicero and Caesar, to Tacitus and Quintilian, the noblest compositions of Ambrose and Gregory would have seemed to be not merely bad writing, but senseless gibberish. The diction of our Book of Common Prayer, on the other hand, has directly or indirectly contributed to form the diction of almost every great English writer, and has extorted the admiration of the most accomplished infidels, and of the most accomplished nonconformists, of men such as David Hume and Robert Hall. End of section 10